wait years. Just, you know, he'll say, I remember one time particularly with this one man who was so difficult. Everybody just had so much trouble with him. Swami said, you know, it's really, it's just been too much. I'm going to speak to him. And he did speak to him four and a half years later. But it was a straight line from the decision to speak to him to four and a half years later, but there was never a good moment in between. And finally, there was the moment, and in that moment, he accomplished his goal, because his goal wasn't to have the wonderful moment of telling him what he did wrong. The goal was to help him to be better. And there was no compulsion inside of Swami to have to say it, because his happiness didn't depend on making this man different. His happiness came from really being a friend to him. Now, wouldn't we rather really be a friend to our spouse instead of having all the satisfaction of being right? You know, we can be right all by ourselves in our apartments later on after we've driven everyone out of our life. Mm-hmm. Is that fair? Mm-hmm. Yes, Joe. Um, can you just elaborate a little on the uh, making a project out of helping people? It's, I mean, it seems to me like that's more of a natural thing for women than it is for men or me. You know, it doesn't seem as kind of a natural compulsion to want to change or make a project out of changing the other person. And, I mean, I can sort of see it in my own head as a divine role that we play to help each other grow. But also it seems like more of a... Well, don't think of it like that, because, Joe, if I said to you, don't you enjoy being friends with people? I mean, that's all yes. I'm saying. All I'm talking about is friendship. Well, I guess the idea of just talking about making a project about changing people's pushes buttons, and I just wonder, what is that? Well, I, I hope I didn't actually say that. Because what I really mean is, if you love someone, and you notice that they have habits that are making them miserable, you know, they, they tend to fall into pits of despair, or they have a tendency to give in to anger, or they tend to see other people's doing things to them that make them all feel resentful, or they feel unloved by God, or inadequate as devotees. You know, make a list. Everybody has, you you live with someone and you see that they constantly fall into delusions that you know are false delusions, and you just, you don't want them to suffer. So you think to yourself, how can I help you? The difference is their soulmate versus your Yes, exactly. Exactly. And if you see, and, and maybe you don't really make any project out of it because that's not your nature, but what you just are is kind and supportive. And you just don't add fuel to the fire. How does that tie in with the not giving advice? Advice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just kind of play it by ear, Joe. I mean, every, to not give advice doesn't mean someone says, well, you know, what do you think about it? I never give advice. <laughs> It, don't, it means don't have the thought in your mind that it's my job to advise. You can give your opinion, you can share thoughts, but it's the thought of, I'm advising you. That's what he's really talking about. He's talking about the consciousness behind it. Oh, well, now that you've asked me, I'm so glad because for the last six years I've been thinking about what you need to do. You know, or, or just, you know, you see someone and you just have a tendency to say, well, you know, actually you have this delusion because this is how you feel. And of course, you know, I used to have that problem, but I don't have that problem anymore because of this. That's what he means. Okay, not magnetic. <laughs> but sitting together and talking and someone saying, you know, it just they made me so mad when they did this and I just got so mad I wanted to hit them. And you can say, well, gosh, did that work? <laughs> you know, and then you just start a conversation. You just share what your point of view is, but it's not the point of view of I'm instructing you because I know. That's really what we're talking about. 
Okay. So any other thoughts or questions or? But you know, Joe's question is valid. You don't want to become like a scientific, uh, like, like you're conducting a science experiment. And that's why you say motherliness. You know, a mother, it's not her project to raise the child. You know, if, she, if you're doing that, it's so un- inhuman, it's not right. It's friendship. It's you're there for each other. You just do what is needful in order to make it a happy time. If, if married couples, if couples related as mother and child and friend to friend, all the time, you know, then there would be no problems. Because you, we just don't do really awful things in those contexts, I mean, in those ideal contexts. You just, if you have a friend, it, you just don't, you don't have that sense that my happiness depends on what you do and therefore you have to change. You know, it's just your friend and sometimes they're kind of clunky and you wish they weren't so clunky, but you know, they're clunky, it's not a problem, let's just go to the movies. But when it's your spouse that's clunky, you get hysterical about it, right? Because there's all this whatever delusion, friend to friend, and then when in doubt, think like a mother. What is your father? Pardon me. What is your father? Think like a mother. No, they can. Motherly love. No, you have to understand. I'm not talking feminine. I'm talking about um, unselfish, appropriate, concerned with other people's reality giving. And that can come through a man or a woman. And, and if you're male, it'll come through you conceivably in a male fashion. But it can still be unselfish, concerned with the other's reality. But you'll, you'll give to that person what you have to give. And I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because I don't mean that every man has to be a female or every female has to be female. But the concept of it, because divine mother uh, can be quite male <laughs> in the sense of, just this is what you need and this is what you're going to get. You know, and a good mother has male and female qualities in them and a good father has all qualities. Do you understand the difference? It's it's being able to, re- it's just the knowledge that I have to discipline myself because that's my responsibility. And see, a mother knows she has to discipline herself. A parent knows they have to discipline themselves because it's my responsibility to be mature but in a, a relationship with spouse, we think I don't have any responsibility to be mature. And that's that's like, sure, you don't, but you won't have anything at the end of it either. You won't grow together. You may stay together, but you won't grow together. Does that make sense? All right. I think that's enough bad news for one night. <laughs> oh, but let me just, let me say one more thing. You know... You, it, it seems difficult, but I'll tell you, um, hurting each other and losing your relationships is hell, right? And disciplining yourself appears to be difficult, but it isn't because you get what you want from it. Do you understand what I mean? What is really hell is not doing it. And we're very confused. We don't realize this, but the opposite is what brings us to hell. And just a little bit of maturity, a little bit of self-control brings you everything that you want. Even a little bit goes a long way. Okay, that's enough. All right, do we have any questions or comments or thoughts from previous classes before we get started on this one? Yes, Sarah? Uh, what about well, it's the same question that Patricia asked last time. You know, people... Um, 
It's that whole discussion. The question is, if people have a lot of negative things, how do you deal with it? First, you have to decide how much you have to relate to people whose energy is incompatible with yours. You can write letters and just not see them as much. And that was that whole discussion. If you can't handle it, don't expose yourself to it. And the other thing is, you don't have to interact nearly as much as you think you do. People can be quiet. I think those are really the two best answers. You should just avoid com avoid company that really pulls you down as much as you can uh, without being cruel. And then don't interact. Or don't set yourself up in situations. You know, go to movies, watch videos, play cards. You know, <laughs> just don't set yourself up in situations and... And try to have a lighthearted attitude. I know some of you have heard the story that I tell you about my friend Paula, who was just a master at um, disarming people with sweetness. And so she just wouldn't fight. She would just refuse to engage. The story that I often tell is when a friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, was dying of cancer in her early 30s. Paula herself since, has since died of cancer. Um, but this woman, Shraddha, yeah, uh, her father, Jake, had had come. Shrada was married and her husband was taking care of her, but Jake was very attached to her. And Shrada and Jake had had a very close but problematic relationship. And so Jake had come because his daughter was dying and his, his wife had died of cancer. I mean, it was, you know, it was a very painful and awful situation. And Jake was sort of like taking over the house. And we called... Paula and myself and another friend to see if we could come visit Shraddha. And Jake said, no, 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 you can't come. So we sort of hung up the phone and discussed among ourselves whether or not we should be bound by Jake. And we all agreed that uh, Shraddha really wouldn't have wanted to, Jake to run her life if she was well enough to know, so he, she probably wouldn't want it now. So we went and just knocked on the door and we showed up. And Paula knew Jake a little bit. We all knew him a little and Jake, when he saw us, he became very t uptight and said, uh, I thought I told you not to come. And I would have responded very differently. Fortunately, I had the sense to stand back. Paula said, she just looked right in his eyes, she said, Jake, we just had to come. Just like that. And, and Jake said again, I told you not to come, she's too tired. Jake, she said, we just had to come. And by the time she said it the third time, he said, all right, but don't stay long. <laughs> but it was she just disarmed him because she refused to get on that wavelength. And so sometimes if people are being really negative, just don't get on the wavelength. Just say, I know how you feel. I'm just not going to, I'm not going to argue with you about it. I know that we disagree, but let's just not go there, you know. And, and you have to do it really. You have to really do it like Paula did it, like Jake, I'm not going to go there. I'm just here being myself, and I'm just not going to go where you are. I know you want to fight with someone because your daughter's dying. I understand that, but it's not going to be me. And she just sort of just got under it, just got right under it, and he just didn't know what to do. We just sailed right in, you know. So it's just that the thought that you have to engage is a complete delusion. If it's not, if you don't want to, don't. And if you refuse to, nothing will happen. You know, that there may be a lot of silence, but that's better. <laughs> All right. Any other questions or thoughts? It works with spices, too. Yes. <laughs> I said it works with spices, too. Yes. Uh -huh. We discussed this quite a bit last time, but just to recapitulate, um, when you have a piece of advice 
they're experts and you know it's something that will they don't. make them better. And the issue of whether to try to have it as to have subtle hints or not. There's a difference between trying and not trying, whether you're, you're emotionally attached. If I'm emotionally attached to something, I probably shouldn't try to do if you really want to say it, that's a clue that you shouldn't say it. I mean, one of the ways to tell whether you really should say it or not is how much you want to. If you really, really want to, you probably shouldn't, because you're coming from your own need to say it, not from the other person's, um, not from intuition and not from the other person's receptivity to it. They may coincide, but not always. They often won't. And if you feel anxious and really eager, um, uh, the wrong kind of eagerness. You know, you can be eager in a very joyful sort of way, like I have the, I finally have the last piece of the puzzle and we can drop it in. But there's a kind of ego involvement. Um, almost everything can be left unsaid. <laughs> it's quite surprising. Especially if you, um, I don't, I don't mean suppressed, I just mean things will come out if they're meant to. But one doesn't have to really push with one's ego nearly as much as we think we do. I mean, you know, what one-eighth of one percent or one-tenth of one percent is about how much you actually have to push compared to how much we do. Just things will happen if you're, if you're there to be an instrument much more readily than if you're, if you're pushing it. And so you just experiment with it. And pray, as I said last week, to the soul of the person you, want, you love and you want to help and ask them to help you find the right time to say it. Because... You see, the, the trick is, and, it, and it's a trick of the mind and a trick of vocabulary you have to work with, they would be better for knowing this. They might be better for knowing this, but they won't be better for your telling them this. And so we, we get it. We get like a unit, unity in our minds between them knowing it and our telling them. And so they would be better for knowing it, but the question is, will my telling them actually result in their knowing it? And that's, that's where the intuition has to come in. And that's where the detachment has to come in. We have a tremendous desire in our culture to just tell each other where it's at. And uh, I always hate it <laughs> when people just sort of lay it out in front of me. I mean, I can bite the bullet and be brave and very straightforward about it. We all learn to be. But it always hurts your feelings. I mean, sometimes it is okay. But so often feelings get hurt and then it's a really hard thing to overcome. Sometimes feelings have to be hurt. You can't go through life being terrified of hurting people's feelings. But just be careful. That's all. You know, I'm very frank. People are very frank with me. And by and large, I appreciate it. But still, you know, you really should be conscious. Conscious. Okay. Any other comments? Questions? All right. The topic for this evening is sexuality in marriage, sexuality in general. It's a big topic. And I used to talk about this a lot more. I sort of lost interest in talking about it, so I'll do my best tonight. Um, Swamiji once made the comment to me that uh, one of the mo biggest difficulties in devotee marriages was sex, which seems like such a sort of unoriginal comment you would expect because the biggest difficulty in so many relationships is sexuality. Why would he particularly mention it in the context of devotees? But there's a sort of unique capacity to become um, extraordinarily confused on the spiritual path because there's a great many things that you read. Um, Yogananda himself makes many very direct statements. And uh, the scriptures just altogether 
you know, are not um, really advocates of sensuality or sexuality. So when you start just reading the teachings just as it's written, you don't end up with a lot of endorsements um, for sex. And you end up, in fact, with some pretty scary sort of uh, diatribes against what a snare and a delusion it is. And yet we all find ourselves, like right here in our little human bodies, and having these compelling um, feelings for one another that uh, seem to um, go against the scripture, and there you are. Um, it's, it's one of those extremely important examples that I was talking about on Swami's birthday, in fact, why I myself am always very careful not to just take even Yogananda's words just flat without sort of hearing uh, Swamiji's interpretation of them. Because uh, just because something is written as this is the way it is doesn't mean that this is the way I'm supposed to do it right today. And when Swamiji was talking about sexuality and marriages among devotees, he says, because uh, people's spiritual aspiration can get so uh, sort of mixed up with psychological and subconscious issues and then um, one or the other, what, what, has happen- what happens too often is one or the other uh, of the couple sort of gets the idea in their head that it would be more spiritual if we weren't so sexual. And then that becomes a sort of imposition upon the relationship. And before you know it, the guilt and the confusion and the sense of uh, spiritual failure becomes so complicated that sometimes you can never take it apart again. And it's an extremely real thing. And so we're always caught between these two realities. On the one hand, there is simple truth in the fact that sexuality is, is vastly overemphasized in our culture. Just, I mean, you can't even begin to talk about how over, overemphasized it is. And much of uh, all, in fact, of course, of what Yogananda writes, but the directional idea indicated by all uplifted treatises on marriage want to put sexuality back into balance. But I think Swamiji's analysis in here is so balanced the way he talks about it because he talks about there's a certain expenditure of energy and we don't necessarily lose energy by expending energy, but it's not necessarily sexuality that actually gives us energy. It's the, it's the state of consciousness of joy and of love and of sharing and of intimacy and of friendship that is, is life-giving. And that sex per se is more a means to the end, to that end, rather than such an end in itself. And he, he gives comment to, which all the scriptures talk about, which cannot be ignored, the difference between sex for men and sex for women in terms of what it takes out of the physical body. And nobody likes to talk about that at all, but Swami says it very directly and bluntly, that the, the creation of semen in the male body takes a great deal of energy from the male body. And he says it very simply. It doesn't show at first that that individuals, especially men who overindulge in sex, it, it taxes the body over time. And so energy that, uh, that constantly has to go to replenish that, uh, the lost energy or the, to, to, just like, um, you know, the, when the woman is bearing a child, Oftentimes women will lose their teeth or other things will happen to them because the, the physical body automatically um, prioritizes the perpetuation of the species. And if, if the mother has to be sacrificed, the baby will get what's needed. And so it is in the male who doesn't carry the child, 
but protecting the semen and making sure that the semen is there and is strong. And if it's constantly spent, then the body has to manufacture more. And as a result, not enough energy is left to keep the rest of the systems running, which is why young men who overindulge in sexuality often end up looking like old men much sooner than individuals who are more moderate in their expression and also more integrated in their sexual expression. Okay, so we start out just with the sort of basic like reconciling of the, of the yogic ideas. But the other side of this whole coin, which is um, perhaps needs to be talked about more, I don't know, is the simple fact that, that we can't get there from here without going through the middle. And Swamiji emphasizes all the times that you don't get out of something by hating it or by doing it badly. In a, uh, I remember, and this is unrelated, I mean, this is not about sexuality, but this is when David and I were building a house at Ananda Village, and I was coming out of uh, ten years of living as a renunciate, of just really having nothing. And I got married, and then we were going to build this house. It wasn't only that we were going to have one, but we were actually going to build one for ourselves. And David has always had a very sort of seamless relationship with the material world. For me, I've always had, I, I used to have, I've learned to overcome it a lot because of his influence. All these categories about this is spiritual and that's not, this is spiritual and that's not. And so material objects always fell in the that's not category as far as I was concerned, and especially something as big as a house. So David has a very fine sense of aesthetics, and he's a, he's a natural designer, and so we were just building just a little house. But he was really putting a lot of care and thought into how it should be done. And my, I was afraid to put care and thought into it, because I was afraid to put care and thought into building that house might mean that I wasn't such a spiritual person anymore, because a spiritual person would not be so interested in a house as to put care and energy into it. To David, it just looked like, if you do anything, you do it right. Why would you do it badly? And he finally had to say to me after some weeks of this, that if I wasn't going to be helpful, that I should at least get out of the way. <laughs> you know, and instead of obstructing his ability to do it well, just stand aside and let him build it as it needed to be built. Now, when he said it, when he put it just like that, I remembered what Swamiji said, is you don't, get, you don't overcome something by resenting it or doing it badly or fearing it in any way. So I realized that I had to face not the sort of image of, oh, if I just don't get engaged in that, that means I'm spiritual. I had to say the circumstances of my, lives, my life is that I have no longer living in the monastery. I have accepted the path of a householder. I have a husband. We need to build this house. The house will long outlast us. You know, what kind of, why would we do it badly? And I also had to say to myself, the mere building of a house does not make me an unspiritual person. To become identified with that, attached to it, dependent upon it, you know, these are the bondages. The mere doing of something does not bind you. And so in our lives as devotees, we also have to understand that certain karmic conditions come upon us, and we can't play it both ways. I remember once um, when many individuals at a certain period at Ananda, when the monastic life was more or less dissolving, and many of the people who had formerly been monks and nuns were gradually forming liaisons and marrying. And, so, and it sort of came to Swami that one particular man who had been a monk for a long time had married, but essentially he was declaring it a celibate marriage. And Swamiji's answer was, very simply, you can't have it both ways. You know, if you're going to be celibate, then don't marry. And if you're going to be married, 
if you're going to marry, don't start by imposing on that lifestyle. You have to enter into it and see what the, what the true realities of that lifestyle will bring you, who you are in that and who your partner is in that and you know where, the, where that's taking you instead of approaching it first intellectually. And, and that's sort of the, the beginning of what he was um, talking about, about not um, uh, well, that's what he was, he was just describing how the, the, the conflicts begin to develop. Because the, the first and basic premise of marriage, which is what we've talked about all along, is that it's a sacrifice of self for the sake of someone else. And all last week when I was talking about um, self-control and not just giving into your moods and not just saying what you want and just everything we've talked about now, just imposing yourself, the essence of a successful relationship is the ability to think first of the welfare of someone else and only secondarily of your own. Now, I always feel these days you have to qualify that when you say that. I mean, it used to be you could say something self-evidently like that, one is one is more oneself for expanding to include the realities of others. It's not a, a diminution of your own capacity to be generous. Okay, we we make these uh, relationships with one another with the expectation that this will be monogamous, with the expectation that there will be a level of loyalty, and yet we pick and choose about the degree to which we will actually essentially be there for our partner. You know, we'll be moody, we'll be angry, we'll be critical, we'll be negative. And sexuality is one of those areas where once that commitment is made, you have no choice but each other. And, and I, I so often really want to say, you know, powerfully to both the men and the women involved, you must take that as a very serious responsibility. We tend to think of it as Swamiji writes, so this is the, um, uh, this is your reward for accepting the uh, responsibilities of marriage. You know, okay, you're going to be a householder, you're going to raise children, so, so you get to have all the sex you want. And yes, that's true, but what you're really doing is you are promising to take care of one another in all ways. And the, the, the compelling physical, the need we have with one another for physical affection is very, very real. And you may be very fortunate where you have a partner and you're just two peas in a pod and everything is just perfect. There's no question of, of different rhythms. There's no question of different attitudes. Um, Swami writes in there, you know, um, he talks about moderation, but for one person, moderation, what one person thinks of moderation, maybe for another, absolute starvation. You just don't know. You can't just sort of declare that this is what's right. What you have to look for above all is what is the reality of the person to whom I have pledged myself. In the Bible, it says, you know, when you marry, the body of the wife no longer belongs to the wife, it belongs to the husband. The body of the husband no longer belongs to the husband, it belongs to the wife. And, you know, these are very big statements, but it's very, very true. And there, there's also a, a profound truth in our particular culture where sexuality is so uh, just overwhelmingly present. You know, we're cultures that, that have sense about these things, just don't don't live like we live. You know, men and women do not freely associate in the way that we do here. Unmarried people, married people who are not uh, with people who are not their spouses. We're just always putting ourselves in situations in which all the magnetism is just crossing like crazy. And with all due respect, you know, women's clothes and men's clothes too, you know, sometimes they hardly exist. I remember one poor 
man who was trying to live a celibate life at Ananda Village just sort of said once, Summer. <laughs> you know? I was just worlds in that sigh. Because it's very hot at Ananda Village in the summer. You know, and people walk around with practically nothing on. And we were all younger and prettier then. I mean, it was not a, not a simple situation. So there is this just constancy of, of, of the thought of sexuality and sexual stimulation. And if you're a smart man or a smart woman, you want to make sure that all that magnetism comes to you. Now, this is a very tricky balance because you also don't want to be... Um, um, ex- uh, well, how do I want to say... Uh, creating more sexuality than is necessary in your life. You know, there's sort of like a comfortable balance that people find, and and to constantly be focusing on sexuality also brings the energy constantly down. No matter what you say about it, no matter how marvelously people try to talk about it, sex is a profoundly, I would even say absurdly physical experience. You know, Yogananda said something. He said, "If if if the urge toward sexuality were not so strong, nobody could ever make you do such a thing. (laughs) <laughs> which you know when you really think about it it's very weird that's children who are not prejudiced by it that's how they always think oh my god they just can't believe it you know when somebody first sort of tells them about this thing it just completely freaks them they don't know what to think about it. I want to tell you one of my friends her little son he was so adorable he's been very, always been very eager to grow up and one night he was playing with some of the older boys outside and they were playing basketball and he kept running into the house and asking mom what time is it what time is it about every 15 minutes what time is it what time is it well it's 8 30 it was a summer night it's a quarter to nine it's nine o'clock finally she said honey what is it why do why do what are you waiting for he says i just can't wait he said because the boys say that puberty starts at 12. (laughs) at 12. But what I was uh, what I was saying is that the um, as Swamiji writes, and I think as anybody who has a little bit of detachment understands, you know the the real power of sexuality. People people will often come when they're first starting out relationships, when they're new devotees, and maybe they're new on the path, and they're just starting a relationship. It's their first relationship in a spiritual context, and they have this idea they want it to be a spiritual relationship, which almost always. Not always, but almost always means, what do we do about sex? Because there's this uh, picture in people's minds, this way over-exaggerated picture, between the definition of spiritual somehow means not sex, or sex means not spiritual. Swamiji said something very, just commonsensical once. He said, you know, our culture is just so, has such an obsession with sexuality that we have really corrupted um our, our understanding of it spiritually in this sense. He said, sex is simply a compulsion of the physical body. You know, if you don't have a physical body, you don't have sex. It's not a problem in the astral world because you don't have a physical body. But it, as long as you have a physical body, there's this compelling um, force that draws us into relationships, not merely, not merely for the, for the perpetuation of the species, but also because... Um, there's a need for us to be forced into intimate relationships with one another because that is the process by which the heart becomes purified. That's how Sri Yukteswar describes it in his book, The Holy Science. He says the 
the process of life is the gradual purification of the heart, the overcoming of the selfish um, impulse of the heart. And one of the ways in which we learn to overcome our selfishness is because we, be, we get into close association with other human beings. And in that close association, our own nature is revealed to us. We open ourselves up. We receive pain. We learn things. We endeavor to be different. And sex is certainly one of the forces that forces us to come together. If there's no strong sexual drive, there's far less incentive um, to, to marry, to have children, to do all of those things, because you're more content, you know, just within yourself. But sex is a problem because it requires somebody else, right? And so it, it draws us. And plus, sex is like the masquerade wish for divine union. And so we have a, a profound, compelling need to expand our consciousness and to experience true love, and sex also pulls us powerfully in that direction. But it's not the sex that really is the fulfillment, and that's what we have to understand. It's everything else that can come through the closeness of a relationship that may also include sexuality. So when people come and talk to me about, I want to have a spiritual relationship, I don't know how to have a spiritual relationship, and often they'll say things to me like, you know, sex has always played a huge part in the relationships I've had in the past. What do I do now? Um, and my answer is a very simple one, which is whether your relationship is spiritual is really not defined by, the, by sex or not sex. It's defined with what you do with your life, right? And what you do with the energy and the friendship and the stability and the strength that your association with each other has. Do you use it just to circle around each other tighter and tighter and tighter and to become more and more self-involved and more, you know, you're so great because you love me and since you're so wonderful and you love me, I must be pretty great too because otherwise somebody like you so wonderful wouldn't love me. You know, just this sort of like mutual ego society that just gets tighter and tighter and tighter. Or do we say with the stability and the confidence and the um, support of someone close to me, then I have more courage to reach out to the world, to be more expansive, to fulfill my abilities, to be creative, to serve others, to be open-hearted, all the things that can happen in life that sometimes become easier when basically the question is solved. You know, there can be a certain restlessness in our age if you wish to have a partner and you don't. I know that's something that a lot of people just have to live with because if God doesn't send you a partner, you don't have one. But there's also a kind of settledness that can come in when you're just sort of, that question is done and well done. And so now you can just sort of have, that's the basis of your life, but what do you do then? That's what determines whether it's spiritual or not. And part of how you behave outwardly from the relationship is also related to you know how you're behaving inwardly. Are we seeing this is just about us? And Swamiji makes a very interesting comment in here, which I recall I asked him about it at one point too, which is, you know, what is the fundamental problem with sexuality? Quite apart from the physiological facts, especially for men and so on, he says the basic fact of sexuality is that it teaches you that your desires are there to be fulfilled. It was just a, a very simple simple statement because you have profound sexual desires. If you have a, a, a cooperative sexual partner, you get in the habit of desire, fulfillment, desire, fulfillment, desire, fulfillment. And that can be a mindset 
that just spreads out into other areas of your life. And one of the reasons for renunciation, renunciation on any level, whether it's, you know, the formal life of a monk or not, is to train yourself that my desires are not there to be fulfilled. My desires are a test of my willpower to stay focused on the infinite and not get dragged down by this thought that I have to have this and I have to have this and I have to have that. Okay? So what, one of the things to remember is just not to get into the mindset of sexuality that says, if I want it, it's mine, and start taking advantage of our partners, becoming insensitive to our partners, feeling betrayed by our partners, feeling that we're owed, uh, all of the different things that we can do that, that make the energy go towards selfishness. But sexuality is also a marvelous exercise in selflessness because there is such a powerful drive towards oneself that if you can at least use that a little bit as a drive toward um, someone else, whether it's the thought of, it doesn't matter to me what I want. Let me just be cooperative for the balance and the harmony of this relationship. Now, again, don't take anything to the extreme because we don't necessarily... We're not necessarily more selfless for, for, for not being sincere. Okay? And, and this is where you can, you can transcend many things sincerely, or you can suppress them, and then they begin to fester within you. So you have to also take everything I'm saying in a balanced way. But I also find that sexuality is also extremely important in relationships for the most simple and obvious reasons. You become exceedingly dependent on someone else. You become exceedingly vulnerable. Um, you, you're just, um, you have no defense. And it, it becomes a tremendous exercise in trust, a tremendous exercise in just allowing someone's reality to, to, to just define yours, you know. And women and men take this very differently. Women, uh, as Swamiji put it, a man's energy, I mean, it literally comes into her, but it also, it kind of takes her over. And people are infinitely too casual about sexuality these days. Nothing can be done about it. It's just sort of, it's too late. You know, the, 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 there's no going back from the position that we're in. But people need to have more, more respect, I think, for sexuality than is common in our culture. Um, people, and this, uh, since we have so many couples here, I'm talking more to single people in this context, but people start their relationships with sex, which gives the illusion that they actually have something in common, right? Then after so many months of sexual experience, they actually begin to get to know each other and discover they don't have much in common, but because they have already been so intimate, they, they feel invaded now by somebody that they don't really like. And so there's a tremendous sense of betrayal and uh, sort of like there was an implied promise, of course, which was never really there, and an implied sense of commitment, an implied sense of trust, which nobody really could possibly give because we didn't even know each other, right? We just sort of made all these promises in the air, and then it all is a mess and everybody gets all upset, and then we start over again. You know, <laughs> another um, a woman that I heard wrote a book once. It was called The New Celibacy. And she was a yogi, but she wrote this book. It was a very sort of, you know, probably was born and died. The book probably lasted about a week, as you can imagine. But uh, she, um, I heard her speak on a 
television show. It was an absurd situation where Ananda was doing a lot of programs in San Francisco and there was some daytime television show that if you took ten people to the program and sat in the audience, you could make an announcement. So we were a whole bunch of us in the Bay Area, and so every week or so we'd go on this television show, and we'd sit in the audience. I mean, the host got real, you know, we got all real familiar with each other, and we'd stand up and announce our programs. So we heard a lot of different daytime television things with some local program. It was very funny. It was actually interesting because the, you know, people who meditate have a particular vibration, and the woman who was the hostess there who got real used to us, about the fifth or sixth time we were there, she said, I don't know why, but I always feel better when you people are in the audience. Just like that. <laughs> it's very sweet, really. Um, but this woman was speaking, and she was, uh, she was actually talking about the chakras, but she didn't say it. She knew about the chakras. But she was talking about that the, the natural reality of sexuality is to allow the energy to rise high. I mean, you know, sexual energy can be entirely physical and therefore maintained in the lower chakras, but the natural direction of, se of sexuality is to, to unite from the heart, or even higher than that, but at least from the heart. But if you are having sexual experiences with somebody that you don't like, or don't trust, or don't know, then you have a natural desire to protect yourself from a more subtle connection. Right? Again, especially women who are, who, who are on the rece receiving end of this. I should say this is rather more a feminine aspect of sexuality. I've had women come up to me afterwards and tell me that they're just male as far as sex is concerned. And I just leave that to each person to decide. But nonetheless, um, she was saying, and then what happens is when you, when you have to resist, uh, when you have to resist such a powerful force that's going toward a merging of consciousness, but you don't want to, she says, it becomes a habit. It becomes a habit to not allow um, much to come into you very deeply. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. And so in the same way, and so she was counseling against promiscuity and so on, which was very, it was a very well-thought-out reality. It's not a, a promiscuous lifestyle is not anything I have personal experience of, so I don't know. I think of myself, I think I've had past lives as a libertine because I feel quite sort of comfortable. I don't have a very, like, uptight sense of these things, but my own little life has been really small when I actually look at it, right? I've just never been in the scene. I dropped out so early and never went into it again. But uh, I've been married or a nun, basically, since I was 19 years old. <laughs> Doesn't really give you much chance in that whole system there. But, uh, uh, but this is what they tell me, <laughs> and it makes good sense to me. By the same token, I, I think that Swamiji's comment in his book and the way he describes it is so perfect when he talks about how much sexuality is enough. He said sex should always be a, a special occasion. And he says you should make love occasionally, he says. And then by that he means it should always be a special occasion. This is such a simple way to put it, isn't it? Because if it's more than that, you're squandering the energy. You know, you're, and I don't mean by that that, you know, there has to always be this enormous, like, story around it. People's lives don't work like that. Nobody has that much time. And when we get these, these fixed ideas in our head that, you know, it always has to be like this or it always has to be like that, we become very lost in our own reality. But they're just, it needs to be done attentively. You know, with full consciousness. Otherwise, 
all that energy which is being spent just dissipates because nothing else is gained from it. You know, no, no deeper level of connection. If we take sex as devotees and use it for as deep a connection as we can draw, then that makes a powerful bond on one more level that just makes the relationship that much stronger. The, the, the more ways in which the loop of magnetism is united in a couple, the more, more easily they can move through the world without always having to stand there and like prop it up. Do you understand what I mean? Because sex just like cements it. It makes it very solid. It makes it very simple. Makes it very, um, uh, it's just a very natural part of it. Oh, I know what I was starting to say. Swamiji was saying, you know, that sex being just a physical compulsion, I, I somehow I got distracted from that thought. He was saying, people don't get so excited because they have to sleep and because they have to eat. But we sleep and eat for exactly the same reasons, is that we are not, we have not yet transcended the compulsions of the body. So sexuality is just one more bodily compulsion that we need to work with as gracefully as we can. Um, naturally, it's, it's primarily different because it's not solitary. You know, because it, it necessarily binds you in this enormous complexity of human relationship. But nonetheless, it's just a natural part of that flow. And I also think it's a mistake. This is just my own opinion. There are, um, tremendous, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a big, uh, I don't know if it has as much life force as it did, you know, 25 years ago, but there's a lot of attempt to really make sex spiritual by very self-conscious means, you know, and they pull out these books from India and so on and all these different ways that you can sort of intensify the sexual experience and they call it Tantra Yoga. Uh, in fact, it's a complete and absolute, um, uh, distortion of what Tantra Yoga is because to, true Tantra Yoga, no one would really be interested in. So the, the, the reality of what Tantra Yoga actually is, in, in the truest sense, is the, it's, it's a kind of reverse practice where you, um, do things that challenge your capacity to keep your consciousness beyond the body. And you challenge yourself to keep your consciousness beyond the body by stimulating the body as much as you can. Or, or the opposite, by uh, putting yourself in exceedingly unpleasant circumstances. You know, you go sit in, cre- in, the, in, in India, you go sit in the cremation grounds, you know, and you, you watch bodies being burned and you try to be utterly detached. You eat rotten foods and you try to be untouched by it. You sit under hot sun, you lie down in the snow, you do all these different things that challenge your consciousness and say, will I keep my awareness beyond the body or will the sensations of the body pull me down? And also the the goal of true Tantra is to become completely indifferent between pleasure and pain. So instead of the goal being to ever intensify the pleasure of the body, the goal is to become absolutely indifferent to the so-called pleasure of the body. And so there there are direct practices that all have to do with ways and means of carrying on sexual activity, but their real purpose, all of them, is for transcendence, not for superindulgence. Okay? Now, um, now Ramakrishna, who was a great saint of the last century, who practiced all paths, he practiced everything, and he also went through the tantric path. And his remark about it afterwards was, yes, he said, you can get into the building that way, but it's better to come in through the door than through the sewer. 
That was how he put it. <laughs> Which is to say, it does work, but but it's not a way that most people would want to do. And in fact, in India, Swamiji knew a what he called a, a man who was actually a master of tantra, and he also said it's a very very dangerous path. No one should practice it because it takes a very strong-minded person, and the tendency to be fooling yourself is so much greater. So far better from the devotee's point of view is to just have a very relaxed and natural attitude towards sexuality. Think of it like everything else that you do because you have a body. You know? And you don't get out of anything by being afraid of it. And a lot of times devotees do have a fear of involvement. People have a fear of involvement. People have a fear of the the power that takes away from you your own freedom. Because sexuality, a, a sexual relationship, a committed sexual relationship, takes away your freedom. You just, you just have to say that. I, my body no longer belongs to me. And especially if you have a desire for um, fidelity from the partner that you're with. You know, you really have to, as I was saying, you have to be very conscious. I, I, sometimes when I'll talk to women and women will say things to me, you know, like, well, you know, I just don't have the same... I, women tend to, tend to say it to me more than men. I don't have the same interest in sexuality that I used to have, you know, and I'm just, you know, I'm not interested like I was. Often maybe they've had children or I'm too tired. I say, honey, that just sounds really great. And then they'll quote to me out of the scriptures, I guess I'm just transcending it. I, that sounds, sounds really great. What do you expect your husband to do now? You know, what do you expect him to do? And it's sort of like, well, you know, give me a good answer. And, and that's, that's how we come and we get all, all lost in our own thoughts. This is how I feel now and it even seems like a good thing. It would be better for us if we weren't so sexual. Men love to hear that. Women love to hear that. It would be better for us. Oh. You know? Oh. Don't ever, ever, ever say that. Ever, ever, ever. If, I mean, there is a natural evolution. I mean, most couples, just come to sort of a natural, comfortable state with the sexual part of their marriage. And if their marriage is evolving at all, it becomes only one part of their lives. It's not, if sex remains the main thing that holds you together, maybe you need to develop some other interests together. You know, it's just like there's a lot more to life because it's really still just your body. But it just generally comes to be a nice, natural part of your life. But if if you have to stretch your own preferences a little bit to just keep it in balance, just go ahead and do it. It, it's just, it's much, much better that way. And, and just thinking in terms of what does, what does he really, he or she really need from me? Not merely what do I want, but what does he or she really need from me? You know, how, how, what are they asking for in this sexual relationship? And of course, men and women are very different from each other. And golly shucks, we can learn something about those differences. What do they really need from me? And then how can I be a servant to them? Just like you make breakfast or do the laundry, you know, how can I be a servant? and make their life really happy. And then, of course, when you really put yourself out for somebody else's well-being, people become very happy, they become very grateful, they become very anxious to um, reciprocate, whether it's in the sexual relationship or in other areas. Just more we say, we're here for each other, not just here for myself. And sex is just a great opportunity to be there for each other. You know, and it's not like one of the hardest things you have to do either. Some things are much harder than this. But, but we, if we orient it, if we orient it that way, interesting comment. He says, 
You know, if people, if the sexuality in a relationship dries up, it often dries up in lots of other ways too. So it's, it's just a comment he throws in there. Even though he himself is the first to say, and Master says all over, you can't really just have a marriage that's just based on sex. That's not enough. But he says at the same time, if we allow distance and dullness to come between us, that's what he's really saying. Of course, some couples transcend sexuality because they're too close for it. You know, they're, they're, they're too close for sex. It, it, it no longer reinforces what they have. It takes away from it. And that's the ideal that of platonic love, as Swami describes it, that as, as he defines it accurately, that you begin with on a more physical level and gradually you expand beyond it. But nonetheless, there's a different kind of non-sexuality that sets in, which is based on countless times in which we disappoint and hurt each other. And then there's, and then there's no more receptivity. You know, women especially, um, because the vibration of the man comes into them and they can't get rid of it afterwards. <laughs> Swamiji said it in this way. He said a man's, a man's energy invades a woman's subconscious and just becomes part of who she is. That's why if a woman is mad at a man, there's just no way she'll have any sexual relationship with him. First thing a woman does when she's mad is kick him out of her bed. And often men just don't get that because it's not the same for them. It's just a whole different way of feeling. But women have to feel really harmonious with the vibration of the man. And if his, if his vibration has become dissonant to you, either on a long-term or on a short-term basis, you just don't want it because it throws you, it throws you off a great deal. Right? So a lot of times when women will come and tell me they've lost interest in sexuality with their spouse, I will say, after a few minutes, why are you mad at him? <laughs> and they'll say, I'm not mad at him, I've just lost interest in sex. And very, very often there's just some undercurrent of resentment or anger or disappointment or a lot of small hurts that have accumulated that makes the vibration dissonant. Right? So, so it is natural that sexuality assumes a, a smaller role in the definition of your relationship, but if it becomes an aversion, it's at least worth asking yourself, why has it really become that? And, and what can we do to, that's why Swami was saying sometimes when that sexual energy dies away, there's a whole lot of separations that have set in that just make it impossible to be that intimate anymore. And, and it's a sign of a lot of other things that have gone wrong. So just pay attention. There's no like absolute rules on this, but just pay attention. Because it's, it's a, it's a symptom of th- sometimes of things that we don't know about otherwise. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, comments or thoughts or questions? Yes, Joe? Um, you said earlier, um, that if you're real smart regarding magnetism, you'll make sure that it comes you only. Mm-hmm. I didn't quite catch me from the other person. Oh, yeah. No, just that make sure that it's, that you have a nice closed system between you. That there's not a lot of free-floating molecules uh-huh. because you're not attentive enough. You know, that... Yeah, it's unrelated to clothes in summer, but, you know, just... I mean, Master, Master says some very interesting things. In, in Yogananda's Rules for Marriage, um, which are quite radical, which I don't have a copy of them to share with you, but they're quite radical. Um, but he doesn't say anything really very much about sexuality, but he remarks about always dress nicely for your spouse, um, stay fit and youthful. And In other words, he, he recognizes that it's just important 
to maintain the, the physical reality of your relationship and not become careless about it. You know, just be attentive to that. I read in uh, one of the, uh, a book about marriage, this man, John well- Wellborn, I think his name is, where he writes good books. And he said that what he and his wife often do is they, they like to dress up very formally and go out in, in very nice clothes sometimes. He said because clothes have become unisex for almost every level except formal wear. <laughs> he said so it, it just like, they just like from time to time to like to reemphasize the polarity and just sort of remind each other of, of the male-female energy. Now, you know, that doesn't have to be done in a non-uplifted way. It doesn't have to be done in a, an overly sensual way. But there is just a natural appreciation of the male for the female and the female for the male. And so there's no harm just sort of keeping that in your mind. You know, that let me be an attractive woman. Let me be a, an attentive and a caring man instead of just, you know, two slobs who kind of hang around with each other. Because <laughs> it's, it's just so easy. I, I mean, I'm, you go to the airport. I, when, I, when I've traveled recently, I look at the airport. Women's clothes are so ugly, just really ugly. You know, women used to dress beautifully. Now, the more egalitarian the society becomes, the more practical women's dress becomes. It's one of the historical signs that the more impractical women's clothes are, the more subservient and, and the more in bondage women are. You know, they can't walk, they can't move, they can't do anything because they have to wear all these terrible clothes. So I'm not going back to that, but I, you just look around and you see women and they're just, they don't look good. <laughs> Because the clothes are just so fundamentally ugly. And it's, it's not like the most important, it's not the most important thing, but it's, it is something to really be conscious of. You know, what kind of, a, what kind of a vibration are you putting out on a continuous basis? You know, very few men and very few women are completely immune to physical impression. I mean, we all grow old. And in the last chapter, Swami said, by all means, you know, don't bank on the fact that she's never going to get old or he's never going to get fat. It's going to happen. Right? But nonetheless, even within that context, just the simple effort um, to, to respect each other enough um, to put out a little energy to, to be dignified with each other, it almost comes to that. You know, just not too much familiarity. Not just, not too much at taking each other for granted. But just recognizing that it's a privilege to be together. We're going to go out to dinner. We're going to take a walk. I'll, I'll put out the energy to be attractive for you. You know, just as much as I would put out, for heaven's sakes, to go to work. You know, you wouldn't think of going to work in ways that you hang around with your spouse all the time. And and by no means am I suggesting that we always be in high heels and stockings. But still, put your mind to it, and men too. You know, David loves these little undershirts that he just, you know, he just these little muscle shirts he loves to wear. And, you know, it's like, well, darling, we are going out to dinner, and much as I love... Your armpits, really? <laughs> this is not necessarily the first thing I want to see. <laughs> but it's a small thing, but you know, he'll go and he'll just put on another shirt. And it's just because it's just a little nicer. It's just a little more upbeat. The vibrations of things. Swami Kriyananda always dresses a little bit nicer than almost anyone around him. He feels like he's always representing Master. And he, and he, I was something I didn't know. He had to really hammer it into me because I was very, very tacky. And he just finally said, you know, it's a, disser- it's a service to others to look nice. Because, in fact, they're the ones who have to look at you. <laughs> you know, you, it, you're not the one who has to look at you. It's them. 
And so if you look kind of unpleasant and icky all the time, they're the ones who have to deal with it. And most of all, your spouse has to deal with it. You know, and it's related to sexuality. It's related to the whole sense of physical relationship. And our bodies do get old. I, I have joked with some of you, it's just so shocking. I say to myself, I must have had a bazillion bodies and probably most of them got old, you know? But still, there it is. When, when I changed from about 45 to 50, there was about three or four years there. Every morning I'd get up and I would change clothes three or four times before I go out of the house. And one day I finally realized it was not what I was wearing, it was what was inside what I was wearing. It just, no matter how hard I tried, I didn't look 30 anymore. And like the, the mental image of oneself is the youthful self. And, and by no means, you know, am I aging badly, but nonetheless, nobody would mistake me for a teenager anymore. I was at Stanford University, they invited me over once, uh, a Mormon group, as it turned out, for a lunchtime forum on religion. They study religions. So I went over there. I actually attended Stanford for one ridiculous year. And so I was walking on the campus. I hadn't been back there in so many years. It was a beautiful day. I sort of remembered, you know, how it was when I walked. I was striding across. I was feeling just so young. And then there were some, like, kids over here. (laughs) And they were um, selling snowboarding lessons. And, and the boy called across to me, the young man called across to me. Hey, he said, you want to take a snowboarding lesson? And I gave him some saucy reply, which was no, because I was feeling so like this. And then he said, it'll make you feel young again. Because, oh. <laughs> you know, he wasn't fooled. <laughs> So it can't really be helped. (laughs) But nonetheless, make the best of what you've got (laughs) in a very detached sort of way, just as a service to others. Well, um, any other comments or thoughts or questions? If not, we'll take a break. Yes, Shelley. I'm sort of struggling with the concept of having sex be a special occasion and being a servant. So is, is this like you continue just to go and be a servant? I think servant. I think I think I think servant is the wrong word for you. Somehow, so I don't think it's working. Be 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 conscious of the fact that this is a partnership. You know, that's all I mean. Just be conscious of the fact that this is a partnership. This is not just about you. This is just about both of you. It's just something you have to work with each other. And if you, if you think too much about yourself, it's not going to work with each other. So you just have to balance that. And, and I couldn't possibly define it better than that. But the thought form of sexuality can be so self-centered for the reasons that I was saying because it's so much about desire fulfilled. So one has to consciously try to balance that with the awareness that this is a partnership and it isn't just about desire fulfilled. That doesn't mean that desire can't be fulfilled. It's just that there's a great black hole that you can fall into unless you're careful. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, see, it's more like um, you're, you're giving a gift and a giving. It's a, it's a cooperative story. You don't have to also, you know, you don't have to tie yourself up with a bow and just appear, you know. <laughs> That's a little, like, not very 90s or very 2000, you know, but it's still, but there's that thought that this is, this is our story and this is part of the deal. 
You know, and so I can't. I, I can't opt out of it. It's. I shouldn't. You like the boy? I'll leave that. I'll leave that to you. <laughs> but you understand what I mean, because because women are are not subservient by nature and not necessarily inspired by that anymore. Although um, everybody should be inspired by that. Selfless service is the way to joy, but it has to be natural. It has to be really natural. Okay. I, what I'm really mostly saying is that I'm surprised, just as I was saying, how many women and men forget that they can't just opt out because they feel like opting out. I mean, I, that's what I was saying. I have these conversations and people just have lost touch with the partnership side of this thing that, well, you know, this is where I'm at and this is what I feel and this is what's happening and you're just going to opt out. Well, what do you think is going to happen if you just opt out? You just can't do that. And that was primarily what I was really trying to say. And and just keep that thought uppermost in your mind. Okay, any other questions or comments or thoughts? Then let's take a break. Ten minutes. If you think it's hot in here, just think if you were over there with all those people. That's your only compensation. Yeah, there's a lot of people over in the sanctuary. It's even hotter over there. <laughs> Remind you all that there's a there's a gap in this class series. Next Tuesday we meet, and the following Tuesday we, we don't meet. And then we meet again for two more sessions, okay? So it's like the 12th or something like that, that week, because there's a, a retreat up at Ananda Village that a lot of us are going to, so we'll skip a week. But we meet next week, and then we have a week off. Um, okay, do we have any more comments or thoughts or questions? I only have a few more things to say if we don't. So, anything that anyone would like to bring up or talk about? Yes. Well, the more creatively you live, the more you transcend all physical limitations. So there is a direct relationship between just um, creative self-expression. I mean, they always speak of sexuality as being the physical form of creative self-expression, and a lot of very creative people... I mean, refined creative people often, great, great artists often were celibate because they, the energy just didn't go both ways. But that's not always true. Um, I think it's more that, just in, in my little world, you know, I can't really, I can't comment it for, on it from the cosmic point of view because I don't really get it. But the more dynamically and creatively you live, the more, the less you are concerned about drawing energy into yourself. And if you're if you're if you're celibate, not by choice, you know, if celibacy is imposed upon you, one of the ways that keeps um, keeps you in balance is to keep having energy flow and feel that there's an expansive reality, so that you would not always feel that something you don't have any outlets for your energy. That would be the best that I could say. Yeah. Any other comments or questions? Um, I, the only other thing, aspect of this chapter that I would talk about just a little bit is about children and young people. Um, just because it's not what people, what I'm going to say is not what people normally say, and it's just sort of worth putting out a few ideas. Swamiji remarks in, in this chapter that, you know, in, until, um, sexuality in our culture will never straighten out until, until young people are trained properly, is the phrase that he uses. And he said to me once that, you know, that it's going to be a, a generation before 
relationships, marital relationships, begin to come into some kind of balance until future generations can get a better um, sense of perspective. Um, Yogananda, in some of his writings and lectures, just makes very um, uh, challenging statements to the American culture. He talks about, you know, in in the teenage years, when young people's hormones are just completely out of control, at the time when they don't have any sense about anything, he said, we put them in a car together and send them off. You know, just sort of like, it doesn't make any sense to be doing that, but our culture has become so accustomed to sexuality um, being indulged rather than directed that we just don't, don't even think of it as odd anymore. And it's something that can't be reversed at this point. It has to be reversed, reversed very gradually. But um, Swami talks about the need to really educate young people before puberty and then during puberty to just sort of talk about, about the, 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 the real implications of sexuality and the, the habit of thinking that everything we want we have to have. Um, and and it, it, it fits into a bigger picture about what is the purpose of our lives. You know, is the purpose of our lives that whatever we want, we have to have, and we have, feel compelling desires for anything, we, it should be given to us. We're so um, averse in this culture uh, to discipline and delayed gratification and patience and, you know, storing up energy for a, a, a better opportunity, for the right opportunity that the way we relate to sex, especially among young people, um, the parents don't like it, but the culture is so oriented that way. I think it's from, you can't just start when sexuality enters the picture to try to educate your children about the whole attitude they should have toward all their impulses. It seems to me like it has to fit into the context of really talking about the fact that, you know, our life is about self-mastery. Our lives are about really choosing our goals and 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 recognizing that we if we dissipate our energy in all directions we'll never accomplish what we're trying to accomplish if we wish to really have um, deep and meaningful relationships with people if we just become sexually obsessed and indiscriminate in our sexuality it it sets up a whole pattern that makes it hard for us to have good judgment later on I mean so as just as I was saying so many people just get involved in relationships out of sexual compulsion because there's never been any training in our lives for us to understand what to do with it. You know, how to um, be restrained, how to meditate, how to lift our energy, how to use our bodies in other ways, how to be creative, how just to regard sex as just one of those things that's happening, not something that therefore has to be the be-all and end-all. Um, I think it's better that that... The, the culture is less um, repressed and secretive and uh, conflicted about sexuality. I think it's better, I think, to be on this side of it in a certain way because, as Swamiji puts it, at least people will learn faster because people learn from their own experience. You know, if something is, if you're, if something is, uh, if something is part of your world, you have direct experience from which you can think. When, when the, sexual revolution was beginning in the early 70s and late 60s. Someone asked Swamiji, what did he think of it? And you know, being from a very orthodox tradition, you would have expected him to make some pious statement. And he said, well, I think by and large it's a good thing. He said, because people are making their own experience the basis of their value judgments. 
He said, it's a good thing if people will actually be honest about their own experience. And if they, if they won't be honest about it, but just allow their preferences and their theories to cloud their judgment, it won't help. But in fact, what people are discovering is what really does work and what really doesn't work. And we have a lot more kind of intelligent thought to bring to the table. But our, our poor children are just totally lost in this culture. I, I very seldom watch, you know, sort of ordinary television. It's not that it's a te- I never see a television, but I don't watch situation comedies and that sort of thing. And every so often I'll see one and, you know, like dropping in from another planet, um, it's astonishing what goes on on television. It's just astonishing. There was this whole one, I have to tell you this just because it was so funny. I'm sure the writer did the whole thing just for this one line at the end. Some, I don't know, you might know even what this was, but there was some, you know, bunch of the super race of perfect, beautiful young men and women who played this in this little sitcom. And this girl had two boy, two boyfriends, two men who were friends, and she was sort of going out with both of them, and there was this whole big thing, and, you know, she was having sex with one and not with the other, and it was just this big thing. And one was very sensitive, and one was very macho, and one was a fireman, and the other was something else. And so gradually it came out, and they, you know, the whole, the whole 30 minutes goes toward the confrontation between the two, and the, um, the guy who wasn't the fireman found out that she was actually having an affair with the other guy, and so she was, she was caught. She said, you know, but I, and both men are standing there, she says, but I, I took you to the park and we had a candlelight picnic. She was trying to justify it. And then he just, still, he was just too upset because he'd been too timed by her and he walked out. So at least she still had the fireman. And the fireman said, you took him on a picnic? You took him on a candlelight picnic like that? And she said, yes, I, I would be happy to take you out. He said, I couldn't possibly go out with a woman who would have an open flame in a wooded area. <laughs> extremely funny (laughs) but the morals were just unbearable unbelievable and the whole thing was about you know the fact that he was so one guy was so handsome I mean you know just like he had these wonderful biceps (laughs) you know this is the stuff of lifelong relationships and and you and another one that I, I stumbled in a few years ago, it was just like the whole thing was that she was married and her next door neighbor wanted her to have an affair with him and and she was being so reluctant. And this was the whole comic thing, you know, and then and, and she was being made to look foolish because she refused to have an affair with him. It, it's just like this is really this is not wholesome. And and we ourselves have to be very careful because Sometimes, every so often, you'll re- recommend a movie to Swami Kriyananda, which you only ever do once or twice in your life, then you never do it again. Because what we think of as okay is so gross. And there was some movie that I recommended, and I thought it was so funny. I had even recently seen it. I thought it was so funny, and then we were watching it with him, and it was, when I started watching it with him, I was just mortified. It was so gross. And afterwards, I said, Swamiji, it's just that We've grown up now in a culture that is so unrefined about so many things that if it's not absolutely sadistic, we think it's fine, you know, and we don't even notice that it's terrible. And and there's just this real um, coarsening 
of our consciousness in so many areas. And, and we have a, a, an obligation to ourselves and to our children to resist it. You know, and in no other, in, in no other area except sexuality is it so terrible. It's just terrible. And, and we, we really have to witness to our young people that there's more going on here. I'm sorry, can't I speak? We have to really witness to, to young people that there's more going on here in a, in a really sincere way. You have to do it completely sincerely. You can't just sort of run back to an old standard. But, but being conscious within ourselves, really, of where sexuality really fits in our lives, being aware of what's true and what isn't true, and trying to, in some feeble way, you know, put at least a little finger into the dike, um, it'll work itself around. They always say, I've, I've heard it said, that whenever the, the yugas are changing, whenever the age of the, the planet is changing, there's always an interim period of total moral decay. And that's definitely where we are. I've also heard that there's great immorality just before there's cataclysm, so that there'll be enough people to be left after the cataclysms come and so many are wiped out. So I don't really know which one we're in right now. But it's just a time when everything's up in the air. And people really need to look to their own hearts and their own experience to be sensible about this. Now, that's my story. I don't have anything else to say unless there's a question. All right, then. We're going home early. Bless you all. <laughs> See you next week.